Well, like I was saying, here, here we are again, the end of the year. It just it seems to happen every year. They, they come and they go. I'm sure many of you are asking yourselves, how, how is it the end of the year already? Where did 2013 go? Time is fleeting. When you're younger, you think you have all the time in the world, so you're more prone to waste that time. But each year that goes by, I think you realize time is precious. You want to make the most of that time. You want to try and redeem that time. And for, for Christians, you want to use that time to please God. It's like Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says in verse 8, We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. The longer you live, the more hardship you see. The more you're ready for this life to end and the next life to begin. You're ready for your eternal life. But for as long as we're around, we have a purpose, and that's 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 9. He says right after, therefore, we also have as our ambition whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. What he means is that whether dead or alive, in this life or the next, our our ambition, our spiritual desire should be to live in a way that's pleasing to God. And this is the desire of a born-again heart. You You want to please the God who saved you, who has done so much for you. So think back on your past year. How pleasing to God were you this past year? In 2013, did you grow in godliness? No, none of us are perfect, but did you become more holy this past year or less holy? Did you draw closer to God or further away? Did you find yourself reading and searching the scriptures to try and know God and learn his will? Or did you perhaps barely pick up your Bible at all? Have you been praying much? Have you been diligent to pray for the needs of the saints, to thank God for all that he has done for you? And then comes the church. Have you been active and involved in the life of the body, trying to serve with your spiritual gifts, or have you been largely absent? There's evangelism. Have you shared the gospel with anyone this past year? Have you been testifying of who Jesus is, or have you largely remained silent? Now, I know some of you are probably thinking, you know, hey, pal, I saw my family on Christmas, and I already received my guilt trip for the year. But really, I'm not asking these questions by way of guilt. That's really not my intention. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty about 2013. Rather, I'm actually trying to get you excited about 2014, the new year. It's very important from time to time to reflect on the past so that you can identify areas where you need to grow so that you can please God more. And that's where we're going with this. That should be your desire if that is your ambition. So looking back on this year, how can you grow to please God more in the next year? If that is your spiritual ambition in life, like 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, then then how can you improve? As I look back on my own year, I find myself asking that question. I also find myself asking this question on behalf of the church. What was this year like for Berean Bible Church? How did we please God as a church? And then where are some areas where we can grow to please God more. 2013 was, for sure, I would say a good year for our church, but there's always room for growth. And as I have been reflecting on on our church at large, one area that I see that we could grow in would be that of evangelism. Evangelism. We have our three E's here at this church to kind of guide us, our basic philosophy of ministry, exalt God, edify believers, 
evangelize the lost. Pretty simple, pretty basic. And we're far from perfect, but I believe we're on the right track, doing the right thing. But of the three, the one where we could grow the most would certainly be the last, and that is evangelism. Sharing the gospel with people is not just the job of the pastor. It's, of course, something I I find myself doing all the time, but every single believer is called and commissioned by God to be an evangelist, to share the good news. And just think, if everyone in this church just led one person to the Lord a year, this church would double every year. Now, I know many people, though, this, this whole concept of leading someone to the Lord, it sounds intimidating and scary. And that, that's not something you're really expected to do, is it? That, that's got to be for the professional Christians, not for the rest of us. But it's not. Of course, you can't control how people respond. God must call them to life. But you are simply to be faithful to do what God calls you to do. You need to learn to be the instrument in the Redeemer's hand. Always ready, always available, always sharp. So that when the time comes, God can pick you up and use you for his purposes. And by the way, that is precisely how you live in a manner pleasing to him. Like prayer, evangelism is a topic that's always convicting because no one evangelizes enough. Christians need greater motivation. That is the desire to share. They need greater equipping. That is knowing what to say, how to say it. And they need greater boldness, that is not having the fear of persecution. This is what I want to help you with this morning. Today I want to see us all challenged by God and his word when it comes to spreading the good news. This should be something you're excited to do, you feel privileged to do, not something you are terrified of. And for this, though, we know we need the power of God's word to speak to our hearts, to bring some fresh conviction when it comes to our role as evangelists. So for this reason, we're normally going through the Gospel of Mark here on Sunday mornings. Just take a quick break. I want you to pick up your Bibles and turn to 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings, we'll be looking at chapters 6 and 7. I don't get to preach from the Old Testament often, so I'll take the chance when I can get it. 2 Kings Chapter 6 to begin with. Now as you're turning on, let me get you up to speed on 2 Kings. It's the time of the kings in Israel's history. Only at this point the kingdom was divided. You've got Judah in the south and then the northern tribes of Israel in the north. And First and Second Kings recounts the history of Israel during this divided kingdom time, culminating in, in the downfall and the exile of both of these kingdoms. Now, 2 Kings chapters 6 and 7 takes us to the northern kingdom, Israel, and then specifically to the city of Samaria, the capital city of northern Israel. You may be familiar with the Samaritans from the New Testament, but back then the Samaritans didn't even exist. Samaria was still an important city for the Jews. Our passage also takes us to the ministry of the great Old Testament prophet Elisha, not to be confused with the greater Old Testament prophet, Elijah. Elijah was the greatest of the prophets, but Elijah, his successor, was not far behind. He, too, performed many of the same amazing signs and wonders that Elijah performed. So you already know that in our story, Elisha is going to be the good guy. So who's going to be the bad guy? 
Well, most of the time when you're reading First and Second Kings, the bad guy is, believe it or not, the king of Israel. Every single king in northern Israel was wicked. And we have no exception here. However, we have someone in our passage who is even more wicked, and that is an outside king, the king of Aram, named Ben-Hadad. Now, for me, personally, whenever I read this, it's always kind of strange, because when I was growing up as a kid, on my baseball team, there's a, a, a guy named Sean Ben-Hadad. And so now when I read this, I picture this king as like a Little League baseball player. It doesn't really work. But this king, Ben-Hadad, was king over Aram. The Arameans, they're ancient enemies of Israel. You may not be familiar with their name, but you're surely familiar with their ancient and even modern counterpart, the Syrians. The Arameans lived in modern-day Syria, and their main city was still, like it is today, Damascus. The Arameans never really rose to prominence, although I bet you've heard of their language, Aramaic. It became the, the major language of the Middle East in that time. Anyway, what you really need to know is that these Arameans and the Israelites at the time were constantly at odds with each other, constantly fighting, trying to take over one another's cities, back and forth. What we find in our passage is just business as normal, business as usual. Look down at verse 24 of 2 Kings chapter 6. Now it came about after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, gathered all his army and went up and besieged Samaria. Many years before this, Ben-Hadad had invaded Israel again, or rather before, but he had failed. Under the reign of Ahab, Ben-Hadad tried to take Israel's capital city, Samaria, before this, but he was defeated. His army was crushed. He was captured. And King Ahab even had the opportunity to kill Ben-Hadad, this wicked foreign king who had oppressed Israel so much. But Ahab let him go. He let him go. King Ahab himself was one of the most wicked kings of Israel. And later he was rebuked by a prophet for letting Ben-Hadad go. Now we find ourselves, Ahab is dead. Jehoram is king over Israel. And Ben-Hadad's back at it again. He's mustered another army. This time even larger, and he's, tried to, he's trying to take Samaria again. This time his forces are, are even larger. Verse 24 says his entire army came with him this time. He's sending everyone to Samaria to take this city. Now, some of you may not be familiar with what it means to besiege a city. I'm not sure how up to speed you are with your ancient military tactics. But just so you know, back then cities were mostly surrounded by large walls, which, which were pretty efficient at keeping bad guys out. And it was very difficult to try and take over a city that had walls. So instead of outright attacking a city with walls, an enemy army would lay siege to the city. This means they would surround the city and cut off its supplies. And since, since most of the farms were outside the city walls, this meant that once the siege started, you're out of food, that you have no more food coming into your city. You're left with whatever you have on storage or in storage in the city. So the result, most of the time, with a siege was famine. And this actually, that's the tactic of a siege. You're trying to starve the people to surrender. If you have enough time, you could just sit there, wait, and starve the entire city to death. And you just walk right in. You don't lose a single soldier. In fact, many years from now, the same city of Samaria would be sieged by the Assyrians for three years. 
until most of them were dead and they just took it over. So that's what's happening here. Ben-Hadad, he's sieging Samaria with his army. It's already working. The city was unprepared for this siege. And so we find, verse 25, this massive famine has already started. Look at verse 25. He says, There is a great famine in Samaria. And behold, they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and a fourth of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. And I know you know you all know what that means, so I'm just going to move right on. <laughs> it's just this verse, just letting you know the the huge inflation that is resulting, showing you how bad the famine was. I mean, he mentions a donkey's head being sold for 80 shekels of silver. A donkey was normally what well, was always an unclean animal to the Jews. It was never eaten. You would never eat a donkey. But desperate times called for desperate measures, and so they were. And if you're going to eat a donkey, what's probably the worst part? The least, the least desirable part was the head. But even this was going for the vastly overpriced amount of 80 shekels of silver, which was about two pounds. The point is that this is something that is worthless now going for a huge sum of money. And the same goes for this fourth of a cab of dove's dung being sold for five shekels of silver. And this may literally be referring to dove droppings that were being eaten, and that's how desperate they were. That, that actually happened at a later siege in Israel's history. But this Hebrew word actually might refer to the inedible husks of a seed. Either way, the point's the same. You have something worthless being sold for a lot of money. That's how desperate these people were. They were starving to death, and they were resorting to, to eating anything. Now, in the next few verses, verses 26 through 30, it continues with another illustration showing just how bad this famine was. And we're going to read it, but I have to warn you, this, this part is graphic. It's recorded in Scripture for a reason, showing you how bad the famine was, also showing you just how depraved Israel was. The people in this city were by no means righteous. They were rather depraved, and this is just an illustration of that. So let's read now. Look at verse 26. As the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, saying, Help, my lord, O king! He said, If the Lord does not help you, from where shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? And the king said to her, What, what is the matter with you? And she answered, This woman said to me, give, give your son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So... We boiled my son and ate him. And I said to her on the next day, Give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. Now this doesn't need a lot of explanation. The people, as you can see, had actually resorted to cannibalism just to try and preserve their own godless, wicked lives. And you wouldn't think that there are degrees of cannibalism, but I guess there are. This is probably the worst kind, showing how depraved and wicked these people were. This in itself was part of the curse of God brought upon Israel for their apostasy and depravity. Anyway, the king is outraged and heartbroken over this sight. First, he grieves. But then he resolves to take action and he just pours out his anger on 
the prophet, Elisha. He directs all of his anger and, and outrage toward Elisha. Verse 31, then he said, may God do to, may God do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. Although this is not the case, the king believed that somehow Elisha was responsible for all of these circumstances. So he vows to kill him. Now, just to summarize a little bit for the sake of time, after this, the king sends a messenger to go to Elisha's house and kill him. But the king, shortly thereafter, though, changes his mind. He's like, oh, I don't want to kill the prophet. So the king runs after the messenger to Elisha's house. Meanwhile, Elisha is warned by God that both of them are coming, and he's prepared. They both show up at the door, and Elisha confronts them. The king eventually confesses. He says this, Behold, this evil is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Verse 33. The king eventually realized that this calamity that had befallen them was according to God's plan. This judgment is from God. And he was right. So in exasperation, he asked, well, why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Presumably, Elijah, Elisha had told him earlier not to surrender to the Arameans, but to hold out and wait for a word from the Lord. But he, he's giving up. This is the king giving up. This is his last straw, end of the line. He has lost all hope. Usually, though, when we come to the end of our own hope and resources, it's when we see God work. The end of our rope is often the beginning of God's, and that's the case here. Everyone in Samaria thought that all hope was lost. There was no way they were going to get out of the siege alive. They were all going to die either by the enemy or they're going to starve to death. And now even the king had lost all hope. He was the, perhaps the last one holding on to hope. But now you can imagine the stage is set for God's miraculous deliverance. Now we come to 2 Kings chapter 7 and look at verse 1. Then Elisha said, listen to the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow, about this time, a measure of fine flour will be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. Again, if you understand a little bit about Old Testament weights and measures, you get how big of a deal this prediction is. And just by way of comparison, earlier we learned that a donkey's head was being sold for 80 shekels of silver. Now Elisha predicts that tomorrow a measure of fine flour, that's the good stuff, about seven quarts, would be sold for just one shekel. So you can see this is a huge turnaround. Literally overnight this famine would be completely lifted and even there would be a great abundance of food. Even more so, he says, these transactions will take place in the gate of Samaria. Now, the city gates, they doubled as the location of the public marketplace. That's where all the buying and selling and trading of goods took place, at the city gates. But during the siege, the gates were shut. There was no trading. So what he's saying is that on the next day, not only would the famine be lifted, but the siege would be lifted as well. And clearly, Elisha is predicting something completely miraculous for Israel, this complete turnaround that just didn't seem possible. For this to happen, it's like it would have to rain bread and barley from heaven. 
And it seems too good to be true, so much so that not everyone believed it. Look at verse 2. The royal officer on whose hand the king was leaning answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? Then he said, Elisha, Behold, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat of it. You can probably guess, it's not going to turn out so well for the royal officer who doubted Elisha's words. Anyway, now we come to verse 3. Technically, everything we've been covering has been introduction. Because this is where our passage actually starts. Verse 3, this is where I wanted to get us. But you need to know the context, otherwise none of this would make sense. But now, turn your attention to verse 3. We first encountered these four lepers. Now, there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate. And they said to one another, why do we sit here until we die? If we say we will enter the city, then the famine is in the city and we will die there. And if we sit here, we die also. Now, therefore, come and let us go over to the camp of the Arameans. If they spare us, we will live. And if they kill us, we will but die. We encountered a leper in the Gospel of Mark. So if you're around, you know the deal here. Lepers were complete outcasts in society. And not only did their disease disfigure and dismember them, but they were total outcasts. They were unclean. They were cast out. They were kept away from society. These four lepers were forced to live outside the city walls. Normally, that was bad enough. But during a siege... You can probably guess that's even worse. Because whereas most people were relatively safe inside the walls, they were still left outside. So who do you think is going to be the first ones to starve or the first ones to be killed by the enemy? It's the lepers outside the walls. So you probably know why they say to one another, why do we sit here until we die? They're desperate and they know it. They say, well, if we go into the city, they've got the famine too, so we'll just die in there. If we stay where we are, well, we're going to die here of starvation as well. They're out of time. They're out of options. And even worse, they're lepers, so they're not going to receive any hand-me-downs. So in complete desperation, they think the unthinkable. Hey, let's try going over to the enemy camp. I mean, what do they have to lose? If the enemies kill them, well, at least they won't die by starvation. They're already dead anyway, in their own minds. But if by chance the enemies spare them, they live. When you're that desperate, this is actually quite logical. This makes sense. This is a good idea. What do they have to lose? Maybe they will find mercy. So they go. What they find, though, is not what they expected. Look now, verse 5. They rose at twilight to go to the camp of the Arameans. When they came to the outskirts of the camp of the Arameans, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Arameans to hear a sound of chariots and a sound of horses, even the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to come upon us. Therefore, They arose and fled in the twilight and left their tents and their horses and their donkeys, even the camp, just as it was, and fled for their life. 
Here we see God's supernatural hand of deliverance at work. I mean, how is God going to resolve this situation and rescue Israel? It seems impossible, but not for God. He directly intervenes and causes the Arameans to hear the sound of a, of a massive army approaching. This is all hill country, so perhaps, you know, on the next hill over, they heard this sound. It sounded like thousands of soldiers coming right at them with chariots and horses. Whatever it was, it was enough to convince them that they were about to die. So they ran, and they didn't stop. So strong was this influence by the Lord that they didn't even have time to, to pack up their tents or take their possessions. They were so scared that they were just about to die. They didn't even have time to saddle their horses and ride off. They just left. So now we see these four lepers. They come upon the enemy camp, and it's completely pristine, except no one's in it. Fires are probably still burning. Food, wealth is everywhere, but no one's home. If this were you at this point, what would you do? What do you think these lepers are about to do? Verse 8. When these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they entered one one tent and ate and drank and carried from there silver and gold and clothes and went and hid them. And they returned and entered another tent and carried from there also and went and hid them. They went to town. And, and who wouldn't do the same? It was like they were enjoying the spoils of war without having to fight. This huge encampment was filled with food and wealth, and it was all theirs now. They went from starving to death to having more food than they can ever eat. And they went from poor outcasts to having more wealth than they could ever spend. So they go to the first tent. There's probably hundreds of tents scattered. They go to the first tent. They take everything. They go and hide it. They come back. They go to the second tent. They take everything. They go and hide it. They come back. But now their conscience starts to bug them a little bit. They realize, you know, this isn't right for us to keep it for ourselves. Look at verse 9. Then they said to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. But we are keeping silent If we wait until morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. These uppers had it right. God had miraculously delivered them and blessed them. They were on the verge of death, but now they had riches. However, meanwhile, their fellow Israelites were still barred up in that city, starving to death, thinking the enemy was still upon them. But here, there's enough food for everyone, enough wealth for everyone. This was God's deliverance, not just for them, but for all the people. And they knew it. They knew God was delivering all Israel, and they could not keep it to themselves. They could not keep silent about this good news. And they were right. Now, for the sake of time, let me summarize how chapter 7 ends. The lepers return to the city. They are still kept outside. But through the gates, they announce this good news to the people. Some believe, but the king himself does not believe. He thinks the Arameans are just hiding and that when they come outside, they'll just kill them all. But desperation prevails. They realize they've got nothing to lose. So the king sends a few people to scout it out. They come back 
It's true. The enemy is gone. The siege is over. And the encampment is theirs. Verse 16. So the people went out and plundered the camp of the Arameans. Then a measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. God's prophecy through Elisha came true just as predicted. And even the royal officer met the fate that was predicted of him. Verse 17. Now the king appointed the royal officer on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. But the people trampled on him at the gate and he died. Just as the man of God had said, who spoke when the king came down to him. And so this is how the story ends. Everything that God said through Elisha came true. The famine was lifted, just like he predicted. The siege was ended, just like he predicted. And even this wicked officer met his demise, just like he predicted. In all, God miraculously saved and delivered his people in a way they never could have expected. And so we finish this chapter and we find ourselves asking ourselves the question, what is the point of this story? Okay, it's a good story in the Old Testament. What's it about? What's, what's really going on here? What's the purpose of this text? We should be asking ourselves that all the time. The answer is, is God. God is the purpose here. See what God can do. See his amazing deliverance. God is always faithful, always powerful, always merciful, and you should. You should trust him. You should wait on him. Wait on him. He will never forsake his people. He will always rescue and deliver them. God's word will always be fulfilled. And this was a great lesson for Israel to learn about their God. So that is the main point of this text. However, tucked inside this lesson is another lesson, an an object lesson that teaches us about the gospel and evangelism. This is what I want to point you to now. It comes from the least likely of characters, these four lepers. And as we observe them, we find them actually acting out this, this object lesson on the process of salvation. And they actually teach us a thing or two about the gospel and evangelism. So I want us to to peer into this now. Consider uh, some lessons as we replay the events of this passage. First, these lepers realize their condition. They, They realize their condition. They're desperate. They knew that they were as good as dead and that there was nothing they could do about it. They were at the end of their rope. But again, this is where God's rope begins. And likewise with salvation, this is always the first step. This is always the first step. You must realize your condition. You have to be desperate. You have to be desperate to be saved. You need to realize just how lost you are. You are separated from God because of your sin. You stand condemned and there's nothing you can do about it. You you deserve it. The path of salvation actually begins with the realization that you are headed for hell. A just judgment for your sin and you can't save yourself. That is the first step always, realizing your condition. The lepers first realized they were done for. And this led them to, secondly, 
hope for mercy. They secondly hoped for mercy. They couldn't save themselves. They knew that. They were, they were goners. They were going to die inside or outside the city. It didn't matter. They were, they were hopeless. Their only hope, therefore, was that their supposed enemy could save them. And even at that, they had nothing to offer. I mean, what would the Arameans want with these four lepers who were starving to death? They had nothing to offer. But they hoped for mercy. Mercy, you could say, is not giving someone what they deserve. Not giving someone what they deserve. Being enemies, these lepers deserved death. But they hoped that was not what they would find. And today with salvation, this too is the second step. After realizing your very desperate situation, you have only one option left. You can't stay here. You're going to die. Your only bet is to go to God and just hope for mercy. Even though to God, you are like the leper, you're unclean and you're his enemy. Still, it's your only hope that he will not give you what you deserve. And that's called mercy. Even though you can offer him nothing, all you can do is hope to be spared. Thankfully, God is good and loving and merciful, and he wants us to come to him like this because he knows we are desperate. And this is what you need to do. Go to him. First, realize your condition. Then second, cry out and hope for mercy. The kicker here is that if you do this with God, he promises to give you grace. And this is what the lepers found. They first realized their condition. They second hoped for mercy. And third, they found grace. They found grace. If mercy is not giving someone what they deserve, grace is giving someone what they don't deserve. You follow that? Mercy, not giving someone what they do deserve. Grace, giving someone what they don't deserve. And these lepers did not deserve anything from their enemies, but they still found unimaginable riches. Just just like that. They had all the food, all the wealth they could ever want, and it was all theirs, just for free. They did nothing to earn this or to deserve this. They just literally walked into it by grace. As you can expect, salvation is the same way. If you humble yourself over your sin, if you cry for mercy, God promises you, it's a promise, his sovereign grace. He will give you unimaginable spiritual riches. He grants you eternal life. He gives you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and a future with him forever. You go from death to life in the fullest sense And like the lepers, you did nothing to earn or deserve this. You had nothing to bring. You were enemies. But you find grace. Of course, we know grace comes with a price. Yeah, you get it for free, but someone's got to pay for you to get what you don't deserve. And with salvation, that someone was Jesus. God made mercy and grace possible by sending his son, Jesus, the Christ, born of a woman, true man, yet true God, to live and die on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. 
the death that you deserved, he died. The riches that he earned, you receive. And so now if you turn to Jesus by faith, you too can be granted eternal life. And this is the only way. This is the only way. So do you have this life? Have you looked upon Jesus in repentance and faith for salvation? Have you believed that he is the Savior, he can save me, he's my only hope, and that he is worth giving your life to follow? Don't let a day go by without doing this. Today is always the day of of salvation. And if you've done this, though, if you have become his disciple, then like the lepers, you're rich. You have it all. You have everything you need in Christ. You have everything. And if you've done this, though, well, there's only one thing left to do now. For after these four lepers realized their condition, hoped for mercy, and found grace, there's only one thing left for them to do. And that is they were compelled to share the good news. They were compelled to share the good news. What God had done for them was too magnificent to hide, to keep secret. And furthermore, the riches they found, there was enough for everyone. They just could not keep silent. And the same is true for you. For those who have been truly born again, you realize what God has done for you is just is too, is too magnificent to, to hide, to stay silent about. You were unclean, but now you're clean. You, you were lost, but now you're found. You were dead, but now you're alive. How could you not share this? Also, the same salvation, the riches you have in Christ, there's enough for everyone. There, there's enough for everyone. If anyone would go to Jesus, they too can be saved. So how can you just keep silent? If you are saved, you are likewise compelled to share the good news. So do you share? You may read this story in 2 Kings and think, well, you know, the people in this city, they didn't deserve any favors from the lepers. I mean, they treated the lepers so rottenly, they scorned them their entire lives. The lepers, they shouldn't have gone back. Those people in the city, they were getting what they deserved. They shouldn't have shared their wealth. But you know, the lepers still did the right thing. Because when it comes to grace or getting what we don't deserve, we're all in the same boat. And true, the city was full of wicked, undeserving people. But before God, we're all wicked, undeserving people. And just because you're saved, you're a Christian, that doesn't mean you're better than anyone else. It just means you found grace. That's it. And so you too still need to share, even with a world that scorns you. And so from this object lesson, we find much like in Mark chapter 1, we once again identify with the lepers. We're like the leper. And these four lepers literally became evangelists. The word evangelist simply means bringer of good news, and that's what they did. That's what you must do as well. If you have received eternal life, you are called and commissioned now to be an evangelist. And I hope you get that straight. Sure, some people are are more gifted than others, but that is a part of your identity now in Christ. If you are saved, you've been called and commissioned to to share the good news. You are compelled. How can you not? 
if you have received these riches. It's not just for pastors. The professional Christians. It's for all. It's for you. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. Paul says, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What he's saying is that if you have been reconciled to God through Christ, guess what? God has now given you a ministry. And what is your ministry? It is the ministry of reconciliation. You now are called to bring people to God, to reconcile them to God. He says it again in verse 19. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. And then he says, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Notice this is for, this is for all, of, all of us. This is not just for Paul, not just for pastors. This is for you. If you are in Christ, you've been reconciled, you're an, you're an ambassador now for Christ. That's your ministry. And that God would make an appeal to the lost through you, through the word of reconciliation, which is the gospel. That's you. That is you now. So you are to represent Christ well and share him with the world. You really need to accept this as part of your identity. You're an evangelist. Whether you're a good one or a bad one, whether you're faithful or unfaithful, to be determined. But if you're in Christ, that's one of your roles now. You are a bringer of good news. Still, I know this sounds intimidating and scary to some of you. The whole concept intimidates many, I know. But breathe a sigh of relief. Because remember that in the end, it's not your job to save people. You can't do that. You can't save anyone. We know that God must first still call them to life. You don't have to bear that burden. Like the lepers, all you can do is stand at the gates and just announce to the people the good news. Some will believe, some won't. Some will accept, some will reject, some might even persecute you. But you can't control that. So you don't need to worry, though. Just be faithful in your calling and commission and leave the rest to God. There's for sure much more we could say about evangelism. It's a, a huge topic. I hope this will suffice for now. Learn this lesson, this motivation on evangelism from these four lepers. Become like them, those who just cannot keep silent. You cannot bear to hide this good news. I want to encourage you to really set your sights on evangelism in this new year, this next year. Think about all the people in your, in your life who need the Savior. Your parents, your, your children, siblings, other relatives, coworkers, neighbors, even strangers. You know people. Is your salvation worth sharing? You may ask, well, what do you say? Well, what am I supposed to say? And granted, we didn't cover the whole equipping aspect this morning on what to say. But still, start with your testimony. Just tell them what God has done for you. If you're saved, then by definition, you have to know the gospel at least a little, somewhat. So just tell them what you know. Tell them what you know about how God 
saved you. That being said, we here at the church want to always be faithful to equip the saints for this work. It is not the job of the pastor to do all the work of the ministry, but like Ephesians 4 says, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And part of that equipping you do on your own through your faithful, diligent study of God's word. You need to be feeding yourself a steady diet of the word. That equips you and actually equips you to share the faith. The more you understand God and his word, the gospel, the better you can share it. But in the year to come, on Sunday nights here at church, early in the new year, once we finish this series, we're going to start a new one called Evangelism Crash Course. So a simple series to teach you and equip you with what to say, how to say it, the basics, and practical as well. Either way, though, the calling commission is yours. And be faithful to be an ambassador of Christ and to share the faith. In all, 2013 has come in God, and now it's in the past. You can't change it, but you can affect the future. The next year can and should be different in many ways for all of us, I'm sure. And if you're a disciple in Christ, what matters most is that you just strive to be more pleasing to him. Like 2 Corinthians 5.9 says, we have as our ambition, whether in this life or the next, to be pleasing to him. I hope that's your prayer for the next year. And specifically when it comes to evangelism, let's all be challenged both individually and corporately as a little church to grow in this area this year, every year, in the years to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your word as always. And we, we do once again identify with these lepers. We, we understand how desperate we are. We, we were lost we were dead, dead men walking, hopeless in this world because of our sin, which, which we committed, which separated us from you. But Lord, we're so thankful that in you we can hope for mercy and find mercy and grace. You are a compassionate God. You are a loving God. Although you're just, you offer life for free. In fact, you paid the penalty through Christ, your son, sending him to die for our sins. You've done this all. No one can ever say you're not loving. You've already shown the world a perfect love. We have received it. We thank you for it. It is good news. We're we're rich, and it's worth telling people about. I pray now you work in all of our hearts to compel us, to convict us, to share. I pray for those who are scared. You can't be scary. Persecution is scary. But give them a greater boldness. That the good news is so good, even if people scorn us, they still need to know. Help them, Lord. Help us all to be faithful. We trust the work of salvation to you. You are the one who saves. You must call. or pray you do that work, especially in the lives of our loved ones. But enable us to be faithful. And may we leave here with a great resolution in this new year to tell people the good news. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.